Hi everyone, welcome to the Foster Inclusion Podcast and thank you so much for joining me. I'm your host, Saida Gomez-Fleury. In this episode, I interview Pretty Kubiane of Coronet Blockchain about two of my favorite subjects, hair and blockchain technology. Pretty is based in South Africa and has managed to grow her business to 2 million US dollars in annual revenues in a relatively short period of time. And as you'll hear in the interview, it's much deeper than hair and technology. Pretty and her company, Cornet Blockchain, reside at the intersection of business and social responsibility. Join us as we discuss the $7 billion hair industry, how Pretty managed to capture value that she passes on to her retail customers, and her entrepreneurship journey. Oh, thank you so much for, um, for agreeing to speak with me. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm actually, I'm very excited um, to hear more about uh, your projects, but before we get into it, like, um, can you tell me more just about yourself, where you grew up, what you studied? Yes, yes, yes. I, well, my, I grew up in the, it's a province, we call them provinces, I think, uh, you are in the States, right? In the no, United States. I'm in Switzerland, and I actually visited. Oh, is it? Yeah, 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 Switzerland, and I visited South Africa <laughs> in 2017. I volunteered in uh, oh, Limpopo province. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I'm from the Eastern Cape side. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just uh, about an hour from Mandela, Nelson Mandela's home. Yeah. So that's where I was born and I grew up. And we had a family business, so I grew up working for a family business. And because it was a family business, just from the age of six, I would follow my dad to the office. He was he ran two types of businesses. One was a wood cutting business where he would go to forest and then they would get uh, those kind of rare wood and supply it to funeral houses, oh, wedding wow. houses, uh, bakeries, butcheries, and those kind of things. And then on weekend, he had an apprenticeship that was like informal because our educational system did not really accommodate people that were not academic uh, good. So th there was just nothing for them. So there was just a bunch of boys that are on the street and, and stuff like that. So dad would take them in and then teach them how to drive and how oh, to wow. fix cars. Fix cars. So because it's a remote village, so there's no penal building tile. So they had to kind of like figure out things together. And then they ended up finding a way to kind of like, they were even build cars from scratch. Oh, and wow. they were self-taught. So there was always that business meets social responsibility where I was growing up at home. Yeah. So from there... I uh, moved to a coastal city of, of uh, Durban where I was, um, uh, I started working with, well, I started fashion and, and, and public relations. So, uh, but I started working with, uh, with, with, with corporate. So corporates will have will set aside a 1% of their budget to take care of their corporate social investments and responsibilities. So what they do, whenever they invest in a group of, this public benefit organization, they will appoint a fund manager to look after that and ensure that the 
public organizations and NGOs, they do what was funded with the corporate money and achieve the objectives of the corporate. So I, I represented a number of corporates there to manage their fund with the NGOs that they were working with. And my last project that was community-based, there's a small country of Lesotho that is near South Africa. They had this large mine that was launching there a number of, so that one was a diamond one. So they were going to mine around 39, uh, 29 billion US dollars out of the ground. So they needed to create a social benefit system yeah. for the mining communities because yeah. there were women that were doing uh, planting and, and, and vegetable gardens and, and those kind of things. So the mine was affecting the land a lot. So now we needed to come up with a socioeconomic projects that they're actually going to do. And it was so successful, the entire country actually adopted it as a, as a, as a best practice for the entire country. Say, mm-hmm. when a mine, a manufacturing company comes to set up, this is what it must do for the community to uplift the community so from there then I started working in management consulting yeah that's we work uh, on just on market entry one we took a number of products to market whenever a, 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 a company creates a new product line we will take it to the market for them. And we expanded a number of companies, like if they exist in other province and they want to open, especially in retail, want to open retail shops across. So we give them that 10K to set up the entire retail, do staffing and training of the staff and everything. They'll mm-hmm. just go into that, including the the, 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 the marketing strategies for, for them to gain traction very fast. So and the last part that we did, we we're welcoming companies that are setting up in South Africa that are coming from other countries in South Africa and the rest of Africa. So that's what well, the management uh, consulting focus was about. So you're really like grounded in business. Like that is your 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 background, business and social responsibility. Yes, yes. That has always been my 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 what you call it. My, in my village when we were growing up, every second family was running some sort of business. Yeah. So firstly, being in a family business, because I'm in a family business even now, I, my co-founder is my husband. So oh, being in a family mm-hmm. business was like, it, it was such a normal thing. It was yeah. when I moved in the big city where people were finding like strange, like why were you working in business with your spouse? I'm like, I grew up like this. Yeah. Should I work with someone else's spouse? Because it's more acceptable and more normal. But just the business, family business, or just the business environment, it's how I grew up. It's what made a lot of sense. Yeah. Even though yeah. my husband comes from a corporate, he worked for corporate all yeah. his life until he came to work for the management consulting and then later for blockchain. I'd like to know more about how you transitioned from, I guess, traditional management consulting into the blockchain space. Yes, yes. Thank you for the question. Uh, it, about in, in 2018, we, my co-founder was also my husband, used to work at Deloitte. So he had an ex-colleague, a colleague there that was now an ex-colleague, who approached us. She came into our office. She has been selling uh, her extension just out of her handbag, out of her needs to provide for her family. And the business was starting to grow. And then she came to us and, like, and told us, 
the business is starting to grow now and I need you guys to put systems in place to formalize the business so that it's ready to grow. So fast forward 36 months from there, we have evolved that business out of a hand to mouth, operating informally into a formalized bankable business that is bringing in two million US dollars a year, employing oh, wow. 40 people, and has four brick and mortar brand uh, 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 stores. Two of them were inside a five star hotels, and it started getting attention, especially for the two positioned uh, uh, brands that were inside five star hotels, because we put them in strategic places so that we can position the brand in a premium way so that it can start attracting premium customers. So it was from there that a number of early celebrities, royal houses, and corporate executives started coming in, and they just couldn't keep quiet, and media started interviewing us, and the word got out there, and then we got this overwhelming request for a number of African brands saying, we want the same transformation, and we want you the same success story. Even big business started saying, we want you to provide the product across one of them had like 200 stores across Africa. So they wanted us to open mini stores inside uh, department stores. So this one questions around how do we provide this kind of success at scale? How do we formalize many jobs? How do we make sure that people in this industry are well, uh, are well educated? But one of the biggest one of those was the product itself because we were looking at 38% counterfeits that end up with 9 million uh, African women. So our solutioning had to start from there. So we were just chatting to a friend over dinner who works at IBM. And then he told us like the, the kind of supply chain brands force that we are talking about. They made this to be 100% a blockchain case. So he invited us to come and speak to the investment committee to present the challenges that we have in the industry at the category level and speak with them about the benefits that we would like to see. And they all agreed it's totally a blockchain case. And yeah. they put down a seed investment to finance the building of the solution itself. So your company grew organically and through one of the pain points you encountered, which was counterfeit products, you saw the need to employ blockchain technology. Definitely, definitely. It, it, blockchain is a, so it's a kind of a technology that is very scalable when yeah. there's a number of people affected by quality issues, trust issues, transaction types of issues, especially today because people are no longer meeting in person. Women used to travel all the way to Asia and other places to source their hair. Now they can do that. So we needed that trust mission to kind of respond to the burden of trust that was within the supply chain. And which products did your company uh, start specializing in? So our first use case worked within the human hair, uh, human hair extensions and other products that are designed without harming uh, uh, the consumers and they are good for natural hair because uh, wearing extension is a, it's the, apart from it being an option, it's also a protective kind of a style. So you can't neglect your natural crown for the sake of the other. So we can't discuss the two of them with and leaving the other. 
So we focus now on healthy products that are used for our African hair and the hair human hair extension, specifically for now for the African market. Even though we are receiving a lot of requests outside Africa and we are having those talks, we have already commenced to create a number of proof of concept in, in a number of countries. Uh, my audience is very diverse and not everyone is familiar with hair, especially amongst African women, women uh, living in the African diaspora. Um, I think the market is valued at about 5.8 billion US dollars in 2021. And I believe uh, from what I saw, it's supposed to grow to about 13.3 billion dollars uh, again, USD between now and the year 2026. Can you tell us a little bit more about like the hair experience in general? Definitely, definitely. So one of the biggest thing is, is, is data deficiency within the industry because yeah. the records are only based on the transactions that were made electronically and the manufacturers that disclose how much hair they forwarded into the African continent. But in 2018, we did about an 18 months due diligence and we found out that in Africa alone, in 2019, the transaction was 7 billion US dollars just in Africa. And oh, Africa wow. accounted just for 30% of the hair with the US sitting at 40%. So there's a lot of numbers that are going around because the data is not there. The supply chain is fragmented. There's no transparency within the supply chain, but there's a number of products and organizations that we follow them around. And we really, really took 18 months to quantify the size of the problem, to quantify the size of the market. In Africa, we've got about 2.5 million families that totally rely, their 85% of their income comes from the sales of human hair extensions. So that's the number of families that rely on this and they didn't start businesses because of market trends. They started it absolutely out of a need. So it's that kind of an industry that is started to put food on the table and to support a very big uh, uh, industry. We have in Africa about 100 million uh, pieces that are being sold every year, of which uh, 38 million of those end up being counterfeit. So here in Africa, that's the size of the market itself. Seven billion in Africa alone. So the uh, the data that I had access to clearly was not accurate. And speaking to your point of taking 18 months to go through and and really quantify the data, that uh, that says a lot. So. Can you break down the supply chain before uh, you introduced blockchain technology and then now that blockchain technology is uh, introduced? Thank you. Thank you for that. So the supply chain, the genesis of the supply chain starts in India. 80% of the good hair stuff there is from India. Even though when it reaches Africa, it's branded as Brazilian, Peruvian, it's because of the texture in the processing of the hair that has been done. But sometimes when you see something saying Peruvian hair, it's actually Indian hair. So it, it comes from India. They donate their hair for religious purposes. Uh, we're seeing uh, during the, 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 the times where they go for, to, the, to the temples in India, uh, one of the temples has about 1.5 barbers that shaves people all day. And they can shave up to 9,000 people in one day. So from there, 
the hair is collected and is sold in an auction format where manufacturers across the world they come through. Previously, they use it to stuff mattresses. So they were like sleeping on money. And then they realized that it was commercializable and they could use the proceeds out of that to restore communities where these people are coming from. So there's those spin-offs around the, the, the temple and the communities that are around there where they have to prepare the hair, uh, clean it and all those kind of things before it's bundled up for for the auction market. And then on the auction day, they bid for hair, these uh, manufacturers. From there, it leaves into a processing house. And then within the processing houses, uh, so far, Asia is the biggest processing, has got the biggest processing capacity in the world. So it, it moves into these corners of the world where it's being processed. And when it's being processed, it's going to undergo inside the manufacturer itself, it's going to undergo up to 50 stages of being prepared. And some of these stages are not disclosed. So when it came in, because literally we work with a number of, of, of manufacturers, when they were submitting compliance papers to us, they would say raw material, Indian hair, but product Peruvian hair. Like what magic is this where hair comes in as Indian, come out as Peruvian? <laughs> yeah. So there are those blind spots that we don't know. And then there are those claims about this is a great A, great top quality based on the age and the dietary habits of the donor, but all those things are claims that they make in order to to just ask for a bigger price without really proving the quality itself. Yeah. So only at like uh, maybe stage number seventy five, African salons came come in. The hair has already left the manufacturing because the African salons can't afford to buy in the big bulks that actually the manufacturers require. So their minimum buying requirement is bigger for African salons. So they sell it to a middleman and then the middleman sell it to another middleman. By the time Africans buy it, it's from a fourth middleman. And now that could be like 150% more on the hair before it reaches the consumer. So when it reaches the consumer, they rebrand it with their salon name and then it, it, it customers will find out on... 80% on LinkedIn, and then they will, I mean, not on LinkedIn, on social media, uh, Instagram is more uh, dominant at the moment, and then they'll go and buy their hair. And because of the blind spot in making the hair, in not fulfilling the promise, the quality promise, that's where the 38% loss remains with African salons because they can't prove that they didn't switch their hair. And this is all this, you said this, it's your word against the manufacturer's work. So they are left here with bad apples and all those kind of things and he has to come out of their pocket. So they remain with, with the loss. So one, what we have done, we've created, uh, we're not uh, totally changing the supply chain because that's the nature of the blockchain technology. You find the community, their values, and the way they transact and use technology to facilitate that. So what, what happens is as soon as, as the hair fall down from Indian temples, all of that data is going to be recorded in our, in our blockchain platform. The, one of the biggest things we want to prove there is ethical sourcing. To yeah. say nobody was coerced into donating their hair or told lies, this hair was donated voluntarily. And it was used for the purpose, because they're a social benefit organization, for the purpose of social impact. 
that he says it was, is going to prove that manufacturers did not drop the tempo. They paid a fair price yeah. for the, that money so that we can know that throughout the supply chain, there's inclusive benefits for everybody who's within the supply chain. At the manufacturing point, what you want to prove there is provenance, which means yeah. how was this hair made, when, by who, under what circumstances is there any child labor, a number of brands from China were burned in the U.S. because they had child labor and forced labor in the processes of making their hair. And the U.S. Uh, authorities said nobody is ever, ever buying from guys like that. So it took them years to find out those kind of things. But with us, we have that transparency within the entire process of the hair, how it's made. We observe, is it affecting the environment? What about the, the, the safety of the people that work there? All of that compliance is stored on our blockchain because we're already declaring it. So the data is there, just fragmented. Now we, we are able to put it everywhere. So at the end of the manufacturing process, every 100 grams of the hair will have a product identity where a consumer can scan it and find out the entire history of the hair from yeah. where it was donated and all those kind of things. So one of the things that we did, we've closed that gap between the manufacturer and the salon. We have brought on board very ethical manufacturers and told them, for the African market, our salons are going to buy directly from you. We're not buying from middlemen so that they can command higher, uh, higher percentages or higher margins in their profit. And yeah. also they can pass the benefit to the consumer so that a bigger demographic of women can actually start affording good quality product and totally minus the fear of counterfeits entering the supply chain that we created. So what we did is we created a parallel supply chain. We're not uh, uh, kind of forcing these things into change this and all those kind of things. We say we're creating a supply chain here. We've got 24 million women in Africa. They're closer to us. We've got half a million uh, businesses that want to buy from our platform. We've got 2 million stylists that we are training and preparing for them to give premium scope into this. You on the market, you comply with our rules, you join our family, and we become an ecosystem of ethical supply chains. That's um that's that is incredible. And so um the 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 value you bring to the manufacturer is really transparency and ethical sourcing. And what you do when you get to your salons is that because you're able to minimize uh the middleman, if I can use that term, um there is greater value captured between the manufacturers and then uh your stylists and your your retail distributors. Definitely, that's, that's correct. So I, would you say that those are the key problems that uh, your blockchain solution solves or are there additional problems? Definitely. Our, our problems for now, the ones we are focusing on across three problems, the quality issues yeah. and the sourcing methods, because on top of the, 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 the middlemen, African salons were spending 40,000 US dollars a year just to travel to source the hair because there's that trust. Like, I, I can't spend 200,000 US dollars and just wire it to somebody I've never seen without knowing what's happening. I remember a friend of ours who is also among the network of salons we work with. She was in China, ordered a hair on one of the biggest uh, China e commerce platforms. 
And the guy was sitting on the pavement and claiming to be a manufacturer, received the money and started to go around the streets to source the hair for, 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 for hair. So those are the things that end up happening. And within our platform, only authenticated supply chains, we send auditors to go into their manufacturing yeah. to ensure that they meet the criteria that we need for our people so that the sourcing is done on the phone, save on travel, save on middlemen. And one of the issues that we solve is business systems because our, our solution comes with the booking system with the inventory management. Because at the end of the day, they need to prove profitability, they need to prove yeah. income. And previously, they were using spreadsheets and books to write down their customers and data were just scattered everywhere. And now they can have that history of transaction. Come the end of the year, they can show that they've been profitable. So those are the problems that we are solving. They are technical in the nature, economical, but they bring about very a big impact, social impacts to the supply chain. And I was thinking as you were speaking about uh, like the individual um, uh, customer you serve going and trying to source hair by themselves, I was thinking of your presentation on um, financial inclusion in farming and the idea of uh, finding ways to pool money together in order to increase uh, the purchasing power and therefore uh, your purchasing leverage with respect uh, to the manufacturers. Is that something that you're incorporating as well uh, with uh, your hair sourcing blockchain project? Definitely, definitely. Well, one of the issues when we look into, I, I, I delivered in, in Kenya this year, we had a, a conference on, 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 on finance. So one of the things that I was delivering is the, 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 the tale of two, it's like the tale of two retailers. One day we're sitting in a meeting with a big retailer and a, a big manufacturing company was there. What's funny about that is the previous day they came to a, a salon, the one that is inside a five-star hotel, and presented to us that they want to leave their products in the shop. The margins were like 3% that they were offering. They are not paying for any marketing. They're not going to hire anybody to look after their merchandise, and they're not going to pay for the putting for the shop in anywhere. Biggest coincidence, the next day, because that retailer, the one that has got 200 stores, we're sitting there, they were briefing suppliers. And we found out that these guys are paying rent out to a big supplier. They are paying for marketing. They are hiring people to look after their inventory. They are paying for, they, they are paid in like 90 days. So we, I went and spoke to the buyer to say, but why, why, why is there a difference? You guys, you make 70% of your money from salons. You've got 40,000 of those in Africa. Only 30% comes from these big retailers. But you give the small salons a rodeo. And they say the problem is volumes. They buy small volumes. The retailers buy bigger volumes. If they were to work together, they will have a bargaining power and they will have better terms to be able to negotiate with manufacturers. And they will get those kind of deals where they pay us within 60 to 90 days and they can keep their cash longer and build a healthy balance sheet. So as long as they're they are disorganized, they don't come together and build a bargaining power, they're always going to be left out because we're not doing this because we discriminate. We're doing this because these are the terms we have. They're fragmented everywhere. So yeah. that was among the things that added so much value to this. Like we told them, okay, we'll speak later because the moment we have those 1,000 salons, the numbers will go. We want exactly 
give us exactly what would it take for you to give us a good price, give us great terms. They gave those things and then we build our solution. We reverse engineered the kind of benefits that they were offering. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I mean, I've been, um, I've been a Bitcoin enthusiast since 2017. And one key use case that I see more and more, especially on the African continent, is the ability to defragment uh, as you mentioned, in order to um, in order to boost, you know, the the bargaining power of so many small players within a, a supply chain, and I think that the potential is just like we're just at the beginning right now. There's so much potential in the future. Absolutely, absolutely, that's correct, hundred percent. What should the end customer know or think about when they, when they find out that the hair or the extensions they're using has been sourced responsible, responsibly? What does this responsible sourcing change for them at the end of the day? So we are big on educating, educating consumers especially. One of the biggest things that I always want to open African women's eyes for is that you're not buying a wig for a thousand dollars, you're buying into a seven billion supply chain. Supply chain, there's people's lives, there's lots of money to be made out there. Hopefully, you're gonna come and join the winning team and be part of the producers instead of consumers. So that's one of the things we try and make them understand the business of hair so that they don't see objects. When we buy clothes, we just buy them for fashion because we want to look fabulous. But we don't understand that we're buying into a supply chain and we are participating there. So the second thing that we always educate them to understand is that you are not just a consumer, you're like an investor. Buying in an ethical supply chain, you know that someone's uh, life is going to be impacted. You know, you're better in salons. You know, there's women that started a business to feed their kids. They're going to be open in 10 years from now. Why would you want them to close by looking for cheap and anything that you can find? So educating in, on those kind of thing. And the third thing and last thing that we would always say is say you have a voice. A number of supply chain we work with, for example, the good wine we enjoy in Africa on the southern tip of Africa, people have been known to be paid by a bottle of wine instead of being giving, uh, given salaries. But what Corona does gives you rights to know what's happening. Like yesterday, we were reading a product that was claiming, it was actually Easter eggs. It was claiming uh, it was used by um, organic eggs, free-range eggs. The cocoa was ethically sourced, like, but we can't prove it. And I was telling uh, uh, my team, like, we can try to walk into a retailer now and say, can you prove what it says? Yeah. They'll just shrug. But technology, we can just scan the thing and we can see the proof and we can add our voice as consumers into the supply chain because it's not retailers that are, it's not regulators and lawmakers that are going to drive the change that we want to see is as consumers. So we shouldn't think we're just consuming. We are part of something that is big and that is changing people's lives. I love that mindset. Um, it reminds me I, about maybe 15 years ago, um, I went to a larger retailer, I won't name it, and the treatment that I received personally as a black woman shocked me. 
I mean, like, um, it was in a different country, a Western country. And um, the person at the checkout demanded to see my passport and uh, other pieces of identification because Mm -hmm. she didn't believe that I had the type of credit card that I have. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? Here's my passport. Here's my ID. I am legit. And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to purchase these items because I am not just buying something to look fabulous, as you say. There's so many outlets for me to choose from. I'm also buying into something. I'm buying into an experience. I'm buying into a a, a corporate culture. I'm buying into a mindset. And this energy does not reflect who I am as an individual. So adios. And ever since, I've avoided that retailer altogether because I'm, I agree with you 100%. It's not just buying clothing. It's not just buying a gorgeous wig or having uh, nice extensions. It's really about buying into a supply chain, investing my time, because it does take time to sort through yeah. and decide what you want, investing yeah. my money, investing my energy, my positive vibrations into an ecosystem that really reflects who I am and how I would like to see the world. And so the fact that you focus on education with the end customer to say to them, you're not just buying hair, you're buying something bigger that will give back to eventually. I think that that is beautiful. And I think that that is, that's a model that can be employed in other industries as you, of course. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. That is, I think that's so wonderful. I can't wait for people (laughs) to hear what you have to say about that. Um, And so there's, so we've spoken about all of the plus, all of the pluses and things are going very well. Um, What types of obstacles have you faced along your journey? So within the, 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 the early stage as well, I think one of the biggest problems was proven value, which we decided, you know, I mean, we're going to take 18 months to really look at the size of this. So among the other questions that we would get was like, but you need to spend millions to build something for just black salons. And you're not using an, a sophisticated tool for a lame like literally in those kinds of words. And they were coming from like bald white men that had no nothing, no idea. So I believe that as business people, we always have to prove value to what we bring into the table as well. So we're not offended. We went out there to say, well, some of the suggestions will come from the biggest bully in the room. So we go and do our homework, whether it's a friend or an enemy who's pointing out something wrong with us. We'll listen. We'll say, thank you for the free advice. We're going to go and check out what you're saying. So that was one of the biggest problems that we're coming in, proving value. Do we really, really need to prove to build this kind of a technology? And its applicability across other supply chain as well come, came as a very, very positive and it started exciting a number of investors. And one of the challenges that we had was early when we started, we couldn't find a, a challenge within Africa for the technical build of the technology itself, yeah. engineers and, and everybody. We had to get the talent from outside the country and we would have hoped that, that we would have that as well. But the good thing about it is we were not sourcing them ourselves. IBM was providing the technical 
input. So they helped us out to provide their own engineers that could uh, uh, bring about that. And I think the last thing as well, one of the things that we had to learn about taking this, like yesterday, we had a meeting with a number of women for the Corona 48, uh, a solution where African women within 48 hours will have a fully-fledged e-commerce uh, business that is registered, have a bank account, have an e-commerce. They can start taking orders in 48 hours. So we we're briefing a number of them that came forward to buy into the program. And I, was, I remember later on, and I was saying my husband, like, we never mentioned once about blockchain. We just mentioned about benefits, about what they're going to get. And the moment we started doing that, People were buying into the solution without knowing what's the underlying technology. So speaking real English instead of tech talk kind, it, it was a big benefit. And it took us time to actually acclimatize to like, okay, our first attempts to communicate were bad because we were just mentioning technical features. It's cool. It's like this. It's like this. People didn't care at all. They just wanted to know how much is this going to save me? What are the benefits am I going to find? So I don't care what this name is, I want it. The moment we learned that, our adoption rate started skyrocketing. It's, it's true what you say. People need to know what the value proposition is. What problem does this solve for me? How will this make my life easier? <clears throat> How will I be profitable with this solution? And then it's almost like it's, it's, it's almost like the, the technology in the background is relevant when you're speaking to adoption. It's the, 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 the key needs that are being solved. And then from there, you work backwards and you can walk people through what the technology is. So um, you mentioned that IBM provided uh, you with engineers initially. Are there training programs in place now for um, people in South Africa and other African countries to be trained in order to learn how to code for for example, or uh, more on the technical aspect of things? So a number of uh, academic institutions are already providing uh, courses that just uh, micro kind of credentialing to short courses. So the cool thing about it, I think it's on the 13th, where we are meeting a, a vice chancellor of a big university. So we have about three universities. They are coming on board. They want to observe our supply chain chains live from food security to leather to other goods that we're going to let them run on our their supply chain in our blockchain. So what they want to do when they want to credential the talent that is there and improve their skill because technology without training, it just provides poverty jobs. You need to include training in that. So they are training the skills, the industry skills, but they are also producing relevant courses that trains technically. So our initiative, the data that we are producing is making courses for coding and solutioning, specifically the African market, because even though we have good best practice, but we, we are working now with, with, with universities to produce uh, the kind of content and, and courses that are specifically, we've seen this work, this is exactly what when we have to, to solution the African market. So it's, it's, it's quite amazing to see the academia coming forward. They're going to even be opening a research center there so that we can do all the research, all the training that is needed to put Africa on the front row 
of this blockchain revolution. Yeah, blockchain revolution, as you say. I love that. Um, so in addition to your partnerships with universities and other academic institutions, what uh, other resources would you require to keep the project going? Thank you so much for that. So even though we strongly believe that the biggest is resources, the, uh, we often say it's the resources, it's ecosystems that businesses have to belong to, especially when you are emerging. So we've been growing a lot in ecosystems that we associate with. They've been growing. And then on the resources side as well, we've been getting a positive uh, response. And one of the things we strongly believe is that the best investor is a consumer. We told that to the customer. We told that the the the, the salon that we moved from 500 US dollars to 2 million US dollars in 36 months, that was not funded by investor. It was just sales. Sales rolling in, coming in. But because we have to move quite fast, we have to move at the level that first world countries are moving and open ourselves up to receiving kinds of investors. So currently we are having talks with a number of, uh, uh, of development funding that we can use so that we can train more stylists to put them into the platform and provide more business acumen training to the salons to make sure that their businesses don't close down because of a lack of uh, of business training. So all those kind of social related uh, yeah. uh, uh, parts uh, of the business, we are partnering with a number of development funds and we're talking to a number of VCs as well so that we can scale really fast. And are these VCs uh, based in the African continent or have you been able to uh, connect with VCs uh, in the U.S., for example, or in other regions? Um, they, they are based everywhere. We have a number of them that are based in Africa. But I think as well, <clears throat> it comes back to the problems we were talking about. One of the biggest challenges is that first of all, countries seems to have a bigger deal size for you'll find that an investor based in Africa want to offer you seven figures or maybe six figures. The other ones, they can add a zero to what you add because they've seen the impact of blockchain around here. People are still, they know the impact is there. They want to be part of what is happening, but their investment is not as big as, the, as it is, but they want the similar value. So as a business, people are always caught between in Petraco, we want to keep everything here at home, then well, we're going to impact the world. So if we talk to the neighbor from next door, we're going to accept their toolbox to help us to help more people. So we had to choose between being loyal to African investors and getting a bigger deal size out there so that we can move faster. That's, um, it's a nice dilemma to have, we agree, but it's a dilemma nonetheless, because then that speaks to your, your brand's core values and, and what your brand chooses to, or how your brand chooses to navigate uh, based on your, your, your monetary resource requirements. That is that is so like I, I absolutely love this project so much it's it speaks to so many especially for black women it speaks to so many levels of um of challenges we faced i mean uh like my husband for example he's white he's got very short hair in the morning he just wakes up 
he lets a little bit of water drip on his hair, he towel dries, and he's ready. And for me, I'm always like, um, I don't have um, extensions or I don't uh, wear a wig, but I always think of the fastest way that I can just get dressed in the morning without worrying about my hair. And um, I know that wigs and just having your hair in braids can facilitate the morning routine so much, especially when you have a child because you have to get dressed, she has to get dressed. (laughs) Hair is, it's more than hair for us, I find. And yeah, and to know that I can have a practical solution that also contributes to something bigger than me is, I think for me personally, that is such a a strong social value that that is missing uh, in my context so far. So I'm glad that you're doing this project. No, definitely, definitely. And so um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon that I haven't asked you about? Uh, so far, I can't think of anything. No? Oh. Um, okay, so how can people get in touch with you, your website, your social media handles? Definitely. Um, I'm most sister on LinkedIn with my name, Pritsi Goviana. So I'm, I'm much sifter on LinkedIn also, even though we are also on Twitter, same handle at Pretty Goreane. And our, our website as well is coronetblockchain.com. They can submit, they can submit there on a contact form. And we always we personally respond to every message to make sure that not a single inquiry is lost within this, the system. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being on this, uh, on this episode of the Foster Inclusion Podcast. And yeah, I look forward to having you return to uh, let us know about progress, uh, milestones and updates uh, on this pro- product, on this project, sorry. And I also look forward to hearing more. Um, maybe we can do a separate interview on farming and financial inclusion, because I think that is a very important topic as well that my audience would love to know more about. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much for hosting me, for creating this platform as well, and for your generosity. (laughs) That's it for this episode, and thank you again for joining us. I just love Pretty's mindset. One of my favorite things she said was, you're not just buying a wig, you're buying into a $7 billion supply chain. And when you look at things that way, it makes sense to buy into a supply chain that provides employment and other opportunities to you and to the people in your community. For Pretty and Cornet Blockchain's contact information, please see the show notes. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, you can always contact me at Saida at fosterinclusion.com. That's S-A-I-D-A-H at F-O-S-T-E-R-I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N.com. And of course, you can visit my website at www.fosterinclusion.com. Bye.